0: Okay, guys, Ecclesiastes 10. Uh, the last time we were together, which was a few weeks ago, um, we looked at the value of true wisdom. Uh, back in chapter 2, verse 13, Solomon noted that wisdom excels folly, as he says there, as light excels darkness. And we said there are great, great benefits to, to wisdom But we also pointed out that that though wisdom is valuable, wisdom is not uh, invincible. Uh, Wisdom has some limitations, and it's important for us as believers to acknowledge uh, those things. Uh, Lest we begin to abuse wisdom, uh, lest we elevate uh, our sort of skillful living uh, or our ability to plan um, or our prudence above God himself. Uh, lest we turn wisdom into a tool to get us what, what we want uh, or to make life go uh, the way that we want, uh, lest we abuse wisdom and think that we can somehow control our future uh, by living righteously and wisely enough uh, a notion that really denies the very place of, of God's sovereignty. So we said w- wisdom is valuable, but it's not meant, never has been meant, to be something that we use as some magical formula to get what we idolatrously desire. Uh, wisdom is priceless, but it's not uh, invulnerable. Uh, that is to say, it won't always protect you from adversity. Uh, practicing God's wisdom will not always protect you from, from difficulty or calamity in your life. Uh, sometimes God breaks the pattern. Uh, we talked about this, how you know, when we have in the Proverbs, Proverbs gives us you know, g- general principles for, for living wisely in this, in this life, Uh, But sometimes God breaks the pattern and brings a result that that seems, from our perspective, to run contrary to what what we're taught to expect in the book of Proverbs. Uh, And he does that, Solomon says, so that we won't trust in our own abilities, uh, so that we won't trust in our own righteous living or our gifts, uh, so that we won't use good things in foolish ways. Uh, so that we will view the sovereign, the sovereign God alone as our strong tower, uh, and not our own uh, wisdom or capabilities, uh, and so that we will live wisely and follow the wise principles of Proverbs, but at the same time trusting God. So this is a real and, and ongoing challenge for us, because as we've noted many times, the God has cursed. Uh, Or this life that we live has has been cursed. God God has made it that way so that nothing apart from faith in Christ will satisfy us. Uh, And yet we dispute with God about that. And we look for ways to get around the consequences of the curse. Uh, Desperately trying to find satisfaction in material things or in sex or influence or food, uh, entertainment, uh, relationships, our work, uh, but to no avail. Sometimes pursuing excessive wickedness, which Solomon says is is clearly folly, but sometimes, and just as foolish, we even pursue what Solomon refers to as excessive righteousness, uh, or we try to maximize wisdom in order to get, again, what we want. But the end is the same. Vanity of vanities, meaninglessness, uh, letdown in our lives, uh, we have this sort of expectation that things are going to happen a certain way, and then we're, we're oftentimes very deflated. Um, but all these things are just reminders of how little we know and how little we control uh, in our lives, and we are confronted time and time again with our own weakness, our own short-sighted perspective uh, in life, our inability to explain the past, our inability to know the future, uh, much less to determine it. And that is exactly the way that God wants it to be. So uh, we've seen this. Chapter 7, you could go back, uh, really leading up to chapter 10, this, this statement uh, comes up time and time again. Solomon says in chapter 7, verse 14, In the day of prosperity be happy, but, then, but in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Uh, Verse 24 of chapter 7, what has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? Chapter 8, verse 17, and I saw every work of God, uh, and I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover, and though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. Chapter 9, verse 1, for I have taken all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men, And their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. Chapter 9 verse 12. Moreover, man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. So these things are clear. We we don't know the future. And the circumstances of our lives are for the most part... Although we don't like to admit this, but circumstances are for the most part out of our control. Um, But acknowledging those things, those realities, isn't enough. In fact, those realities may actually lead us to draw the wrong conclusions and to respond in sinful ways to the things that are going on in our lives. And once again, we need God's wisdom on this matter. Uh, We need God's wisdom so that we guard our hearts. And we guard our hearts against... And these are the things we'll talk about uh, in our passage this morning. Uh, guarding our hearts against two sinful responses when we consider our inability to know the future and to control the future. So there's two two possible sinful responses that Solomon brings up in this at the end of chapter 10 and in the first part of chapter 11. Uh, Our response as Christians to the reality that we do not know what's coming, uh, we cannot predict the future, and we cannot determine or certainly not control the future. The first sinful response is bitter frustration. Um, We'll look at that in chapter 10. And the second possibility, the second sinful response is paralyzing anxiety. So first, Solomon says, When you don't know the future and when circumstances are out of your control, the first thing you need to do is to beware of bitter frustration. And so we pick up here in chapter 10, verse 16. And he says here, Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man, for a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. Now here Solomon describes a situation where a king is in charge of the land. Not necessarily a lad. When we think about a lad, we typically think of a, uh, a, a young person. So we might think that he's talking here about a, a boy king. Um, but more likely, he's referring to a man who is older, but is actually just uh, immature in, in his thinking. In fact, King Solomon used the term, this very term, lad, that particular way when he first took the throne in Israel to describe himself. Uh, when he was just simply acknowledging his lack of experience uh, before asking God for the wisdom to rule. So Solomon himself at that time wasn't a young boy. He was a, he was a, a man, an adult, but he was just acknowledging that in his thinking and in his, in his experience, he was in many ways immature. He was a lad. So we have this kingly court where Solomon says, "...gluttonous leaders, gluttonous princes feast every morning." Now, in Hebrew culture, the morning was the time that was used to judge the needs of the people, to to judge and assess and address the problems of the the people. Late afternoon and evening, those were the times for feasting. But here we have men who indulge themselves pretty much all throughout the day um, and in the process neglecting their duties. He talks about excessive feasting. Uh, drinking to the point of drunkenness, Uh, men using their position of privilege for selfish pleasure and at the same time destroying the kingdom through their slothfulness and through their neglect, Uh, leaders having more a sense of entitlement than a sense of responsibility, rulers indulging in in luxury and intemperance, allowing the nation, allowing the land to deteriorate and permitting abuses to flourish, and so they're basically indulging themselves and in being extremely irresponsible with uh, the responsibilities they should have to 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 lead and to solve problems. They're actually creating creating problems for the land um, to such a degree that Solomon actually compares their reckless and dilapidated maintenance of of justice um, to the leaking of a house's roof causing the roof to rot and ultimately collapse. And then to compound that problem, the people of the land are also idle and indulgent in laughter, feasting and drinking, and think that money is the solution to everything, just following the example of their leaders who eat and drink and carelessly spend the taxpayers' money. So you talk about a situation that is not only out of a person's control, but is also a situation that's hard to deal with. I mean, if you don't believe that, then just think about your typical reaction and response when you see and hear, maybe even on a daily basis, about all the shenanigans and the things that are going on in in the in, in our government and, and in and in the political arena. So, these are difficult things. Uh, governments led by a hierarchy of officials who are either incompetent, impulsive, and simple-minded, or naive, vain, and insecure. So what Solomon's describing here is a situation that is truly both frustrating it, t- to a degree, and but very distant in the sense of we don't have a lot of control over these things. We witness them. We see them unfold. But there's really not a lot that we can do on a day-to-day basis to affect that to, 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 a, to a great degree. So what do you do? How do you react to that kind of a situation? Well, I can tell you how we're tempted to respond when we see those kinds of things. We're tempted to complain, right? We complain. We grumble. Uh, we criticize or as I'll call it here, bitter frustration. Uh, we're not just frustrated with what's going on, but we actually become very critical and very bitter, I think, in, in our hearts about those things that are, uh, that are out, our, out of our control, whether they be a situation like this or, or, or many others in our life. Um, so yeah, isn't that what we typically do? I mean, isn't that what we often do when we're we're in some unpleasant circumstance that is beyond our control? Um and it is. And that's why Solomon warns us in verse twenty, he says, Furthermore, in your bedchamber, which actually in in the in the Hebrew is not a good it's it actually is, would be better translated, furthermore, in your thoughts. So he's basically talking about what you say to yourself or what you think about in your own heart. He's not, the bedchamber is just, in fact, who has a different translation than that? What does yours say, Robin? In your thoughts, yeah, that's, that's that's more accurate. So he's basically saying that, you know, in your own thoughts, do not curse the king. Don't let that be your response. When you see these things in your life that are out of control, and the people that are involved in those kinds of circumstances, be careful about what's going on in your own heart because when you're that way, you're not factoring in God's sovereignty. You're you're not just grumbling against those people or that circumstance. You are ultimately grumbling against God's plan, against God's God's purposes. So he says, in your in your thoughts, do not curse the king, and in your sleeping rooms Do not curse a rich man, for a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. So Solomon says, essentially, beware of that bitterness and that frustration that you don't know the future and that you're not getting what you want. Don't entertain bitterness in your heart, and definitely don't express bitterness to even your closest confidant. Because when you do that, it begins to excel and express itself and takes on wings of its own. So he's just saying this is this is the, the tendency when we're put in a situation as Christians that we don't have a lot of control over and we don't like what's going on. We have a tendency to become critical, to complain, to grumble and then to disseminate that grumbling and that critical spirit and that complaining. So he's saying don't let it guard your heart against it but then, of course, if you don't guard your heart, then the next step is it's coming out. So once it's there, if, you, if you've lost that battle and you're entertaining those kinds of things and you're not trusting in God's providence and God's sovereignty in those kinds of situations, that complaining, that self-talk, if you will, you know, to, to yourself, thinking about those things, talking about those things, viewing life that way, that is going to ultimately spill over. And it may just spill over to the people that are the closest to you, but it probably is not going to stay with those individuals because this kind of stuff just spreads and festers. So saying don't start a radio program <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> or a but you understand this. I mean, you deal with this. I mean, we, at, at different levels, we we've seen this play out. Um, but I know that you know i mean if you're in a, if you 're in a leadership position in any any organization uh, institution, this is a constant battle right and so things are going on at an upper level, and the people down here they may not like what 's going on they don 't like it i 'm not saying that mike 's you know living it up every day here and he 's dr- drinking and being merry and and, and, and wasting dollars but i 'm just saying there 's always this tendency in in any Sort of authority, submission, relationship for the person that's called to submit to those authorities to not like what's going on, and then to, rather than just glad, gladly submit to it and understand this is just God's, this is just God's design. There's a tendency for us to complain and and to and to not take into consideration God's providence and His sovereignty, and then that kind of stuff just goes out. Uh, Charles Bridges in his commentary. On Ecclesiastes, this is sort of kind, of kind of an older King James, the way that he, he writes, but I thought this was a good, a good quote about this particular uh, section. He says, uh, Bridges speaks about another contemporary of his and says, A modern writer gives a graphical application of this proverb. It is dangerous to speak where secrecy is required. The thought is thine own while you keep it to yourself. But once the cage is opened and the bird let loose, who knows how far its flight may bear it. At first you think of trying it of tying it, excuse me, tying it by the foot. You tell your secret to a single friend. He tells it to another, who mentions it to a chosen few. The cord is loosened, then it is slipped. Your bird will no more roost in secrecy. Then learn to keep your secret to yourself. It is snug to know the bird is in the cage. Securely fastened, and though it flutter against the bars, desiring its liberty, still keep it close. No harm it will do while there. What mischief it might do if let loose, you know not. If you think evil of a man, what need to mention it? His faults are known to thee, but why repeat them? Who has a right to ask it? God suffered thee to know these that thou mightest pray for him, and not to harm him and others by spreading his dishonor. Pray for him, if you will, the more the better. Think what God's grace may do for him. Such thoughts are safe, but if you harbor thoughts against the man and not against the sin, most probably the thought will out and injure you. (laughs) So saying, be careful. Be careful about those things. Be careful about your attitude when faced with the realities of of, of a Genesis 3 world the folly of others, and the the limitations of your own life. Be careful about constant complaining that spreads dissatisfaction and distrust. Um, This this is too often the way that we respond, with too much examination of people's lives, too much criticism of what they do. Uh, Ray Stedman said said this, that unfortunately, he says, this is the American way. Electing a man to office, giving him six months to change everything, and if he does not do it, spending the next three and a half years complaining about it <laughs> that's pretty it's not not far off off the mark and then he actually made the statement um, and this was years ago he made the statement that there would come a time in our country where no man would serve two terms because that he felt like that people were becoming so critical of it's leaders that a guy wouldn't survive, that no leader in our country would survive more than four years because the level of criticism would, would raise to such an extent that before he could get halfway through his term, people would be ready to kick him out and get somebody else. So. What's that? So. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see where we're headed. So beware of bitter frustration. Guard your heart. It says guard your, your mouth. This is true wisdom. Next, Solomon warns us about, as, as, as well, um, gives us the remedy for the sin of paralyzing anxiety. Uh, now, if you think about it, there are at least three reasons why a believer in Jesus Christ might struggle to live worry-free under the sun. The first uh, is that they, uh, they, they might have an inadequate understanding of God's sovereignty. Solomon stated back in chapter 3, verse 1, there is an appointed time for everything and there is a time for every event under heaven. And Solomon has made it very clear that God has a plan and that there are no accidents in that plan. But if you don't believe in the sovereign God of Scripture, you might be tempted to think that, for example, maybe you have an idea. And I know there's many Christians who have this concept of Satan, that somehow Satan is on par with God, um, and is able at times to disrupt God's plan as if Satan and God are in this tug-of-war battle to get God's plan to either get it done or to disrupt it. Uh, Or maybe because you don't believe that God is in complete control, you you might be tempted to think that you are in control. Uh, Both of those things, both of those misunderstandings as well as many others like them will inevitably leave you consumed with anxiety and fear. So it could just be that you don't have an understanding of God's sovereignty. That would lead to, to, to worry and fear and anxiety. A Second, some believers struggle with worry because even though they, f- they might fully understand God's sovereignty, they may still doubt God's goodness or His wisdom. So they understand the sovereignty of God. They just don't understand the other attributes of God that provide the balance that we need. So, if if you know that God is all powerful, but you also believe that He is unaware or that He is unconcerned or that He is unloving, you will certainly be gripped with fear. On the other hand, believing what our pastor preached last Sunday, Romans 8 28, knowing that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to God's purpose and who love Him, um, and believing that that God is not only sovereign, but but also good and wise, will bring great relief to the person that struggles with fear and worry. So it's not just that God is sovereign; it's that, and as our pastor will go on and explain, God is for us, <laughs> right? So He's not just powerful and able to do what He pleases, but He is on our side, right? He knows all things and 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 desires what is what is best for us. So sometimes you have people that understand the sovereignty of God, they just don't have a, a good understanding of God's wisdom or His good intentions. And then there are those who have a mystical view of decision-making, a mystical view of decision-making, the belief that, that, that somehow we should know through some secret message from God what His decreed or His sovereign will is before We make a decision. That is paralyzing. That's paralyzing. And it's unbiblical. It's an unbiblical way of thinking. And yet, many Christians agonize over making certain decisions because they can't find a procedure in the Bible for divining God's will. So they're on the hunt. They're looking for God's will, but they have a very mystical view of of what that is. In fact... um, Just a a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a message from a a pastor in our area, and uh, this is maybe three, it's been in the last month, preached a message, and it really wasn't the thrust of the message. It was almost a a sort of a caveat in the sermon. But he just said, uh, he mentioned the concept of knowing God's will and just said kind of parenthetically, oh, by the way, listen, I get this question all the time. People want to know what the will of God is. Uh, you know, people are making decisions. They come to my office. We talk about it, and, and they're and they're telling me how they h- how do they make decisions, and how do they you know know that God is leading them in a certain direction. And so he just said, "Let me just give you three quick things." I mean, if you if you want to know how to make decisions and know the will of God, this is what you need to do. He said, first of all, you need to have peace from God." And so, that, and then he, and he had qualified it. He said, now I'm not talking about your peace." Because he said, people will come to me and say that they have peace about things in their life, and that's why they're making a certain decision. He said, but I'm not talking about your personal peace. I'm talking about peace from God. Well, my first question is, how do you know the difference between those two things? <laughs> it, it, you're, they're both very subjective. I mean, if you talk about, the, I understand what he's saying, that it's, there is a difference between some sort of self-contrived peace and a peace that's given from God. The problem is, subjectively, how do you know the difference between the two? Because you, you, people just say, I have peace. Well, what does that mean? I mean, I, I, most people are going to say it's from God. <laughs> They're not going to say it's from themselves. And how would you ever know? If they were coming to you for help and counsel, how, what, what, what uh, I guess, um, sort of in, in, a, um, in a concrete way, how would you give them qualifications to know what, if it's that person's own personal peace or if it's peace from God? So that was the first thing. But you, So you've got to have peace from God, not yourself. Uh, the second thing he mentioned was it has to glorify Jesus. Well, I agree with that. Our decisions to be in the will of God, need, they need to glorify Jesus. But that to me also is a pretty big umbrella. So when you just say that, I'm thinking about all the Christians listening to this message that are making decisions and they're thinking, well, yeah, I mean, I want Jesus to be glorified. But But then when you ask them what they're doing many of them are doing things that are completely contrary to what the Word of God teaches. But yet in their minds, they're glorifying Jesus. So that's, there's not, again, not a lot of detail with that. And then the third one, which was the most detailed, which I just thought this is going to get people going down a dangerous road, is he said that you need to have a personal, essentially a a a, a word from God, from His Word, via your devotion or your devotional. So I'm thinking, okay, well, that's good. So at least we're talking about the Scripture at this point. But the the interesting thing was he only gave one example of what he was talking about, and he specifically in the example described not just devotion to God. He's talking about a quiet time, and specifically he actually mentioned a devotional. So it wasn't the Bible. It was actually a devotional book and gave an example of a time in his life when he was reading this devotional book and, of course, this particular one that he mentioned, every day is a different place in the Bible. You know, it's jumping all over the place. But that particular day, God was doing something in his life and the scripture verse for that day, in his mind, lined up with what God had been doing and was preparing for him. And so he took that as this personal word from God that God wanted him to go down this particular road. So I'm just thinking, okay, you got all these people listening. A, some of them are thinking at this point, well, God's never spoken to me that way. So this guy must be super spiritual because he has these devotions and God is clearly doing something supernatural going on in his life, but I can't think of a time when God just did that for me. Uh, Secondly... I'm thinking about all the different kinds of devotionals that people are reading. (laughs) The devotionals themselves may be garbage, but now they're going to go back to their devotional. Rather than going to the Scriptures, they're going to go to their devotional, and they're going to go on a hunt. That's the bottom line. They're going to be in some decision-making process in their life, and they're going to be looking for God to somehow, something's going to jump off the page to them and confirm to them that this is the direction that God is leading them. Did you have a comment? I was just going to say that oddly enough they've actually come out with a term for that. And they call it now narcissism. Yeah, okay, very good. It really have. it's called narcissism. So. All right, that's a new one. Have not heard of that. I will have to remember that. So I'm just thinking, okay, so and that was it. And then it just moved on to other things. Something okay, because this is a this is truly it is one of the most common questions people ask I mean how do I know this is the will of God and you just basically said as long as it glorifies Jesus and uh, as long as you got God's peace whatever that is about it but something subjective and then he gave them essentially another subjective example which is re- have a devotion and in your devotion wait essentially for God to communicate with you in such a way that you'll know when it happens. To me that's re- that's just reckless. I mean instead of just saying go to the word of God, study the word of God and as God teaches you the tr- the truth of his word, what we're supposed to do with that is we're supposed to formulate convictions from the truth of God's word and then we make our decisions based upon convictions in our lives. We do certain things because we believe certain things. And we're not going to have this detailed plan about what God's going to do in our life tomorrow. You're just not going to know that. So, this is a huge problem uh, in the church today. Cuz I from my estimation what he did is he just pushed people away from the word. He actually he actually pushed them in the direction of getting some sort of a good Christian resource, and that that's really how God's going to speak to you is via those kinds of, of resources. Uh, but what you have is you have people and these formulas, right? I mean, that's what they're, they're, they're being taught are these formulas, whether it's seeking peace or looking for signs or setting up conditions, and these things constantly fail them. I mean, people, are they try them. I mean, they do them, but they constantly fail them. Uh, believing that they are to, to somehow find God's will that way, they spend their days in anxiety and fear waiting for this kind of secret message. Interpreting everything around them as some kind of revelation from God. And Solomon just says that, that is a fear-ridden way to live the Christian life. And the idea that we should make decisions based on a secret, mystical Non verifiable message from God in which God tells us the future before it happens is absolutely foreign to the wisdom books or the decision making books of the Bible, which are essentially Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Yes? Oh, yeah. They want to know. Yes, that's what I'm saying, or to put it this way, when you're talking about the will of God, you you can be talking about one of two things. One, we call God's revealed will, which is what we have here. So God has revealed Mm -hmm. His will in the Word of God, but that's not what they're asking for. What they want to know is they want to know ahead of time the specifics about what God is going to do in this situation in their life, and God never tells us He's going to tell us that in advance. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, we know the general direction. Like we could take Romans eight twenty eight through 30, and we could say we know the general direction. We know what God is doing. His will is for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. So we know these... We have some general clues as to what God is doing in our lives, but when it comes down to the details and those kinds of things, that's what people really want. And you say, well, why do people want that? Well, because they want the guarantee. They want to know that if they do this particular thing, that somehow God is going to bless this particular thing and that it's going to somehow safeguard them against adversity and affliction. So the idea that we should be certain about God's plan before we make our plans just isn't biblical. <laughs> James 4.15 says, Instead instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this this or that. Not find the secret will of God, and then make your plans on that basis. So it's, it's the lust for security, the lust for a safety net, uh, divine protection against the, the dangers of decision-making. Uh, those, it's, just, it's just not a biblical quest. But if you don't know God's plan for tomorrow, the question comes, then what are you supposed to do? <laughs> so, okay, we admit we don't know it, okay? So what do we do? We just run, run around panicked, Because we don't know it, or do we withdraw into some kind of self-protecting shell? And in light of Solomon's strong presentation of God's sovereignty, couldn't that tempt you to fatalism on one hand? I mean, just saying, well, if God's got all this thing worked out, I mean, God's sovereign, so why bother? right? Why try? Why plan? Why the effort? And what about Solomon's teaching on the inevitability of calamity? that might tempt you to be a little bit nervous when you think about tomorrow. So you, so you see, worry's coming from a lot, of different, a lot of different directions, from a lot of different sides. And we need wisdom to know how to escape its paralyzing grip, avoiding all at the same time fatalism, panic, and the temptation to self-trust. Well, Solomon gives us a, a ton of help in this regard, beginning in chapter 11, by laying out five proverbial practical principles for overcoming worry. Verse 1, he says this, "'Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies.' He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. So we see, what's that? chapter 11, Ecclesiastes 11, verse, uh, verses 1 to 6. Uh, so we see this issue of worry clearly, I think, in verse 4, where he says, He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. So Solomon says there's a farmer, and this farmer wants to be sure of perfect weather before he plants. And he wants to be sure of perfect weather before, before he harvests and consequently anxiety over every breeze and every cloud immobilizes him since the the circumstances might not be perfect and he decides to not even open the door and go outside. Now we understand farming was risky business. Uh, Was that way in Solomon's day? It still is. uh, Untimely rain could cause your crops to mildew. Blasting eastern winds out of the Arabian desert could incinerate your crops. Locusts might devour them. Amalekite raiders might come in and steal them. The possibilities for disasters if you were a farmer were numerous. And this farmer in verse 4 is familiar with all those, all those things, all those possibilities. In fact, he goes to bed with a list of those possible disasters on his mind at night. And he wakes up in the morning with that list. He is a worrier. He looks out the window in the morning as he drinks his coffee, and and if he notices the wind blowing at all, he concludes that he better not sow that day because he might lose some seed. Then at harvest time, he is paralyzed by another concern, clouds off to the west. There might be a storm brewing out over the Mediterranean. Better not harvest today. So here he is, so worried about losing his investment, So aware of his inability to know or to control the future, but so gripped with fear that he has led to inactivity, which is a huge problem, not just for him, but for us, right? So you and I are not, we are not going to know God's plan for daily events in advance. God is just not going to tell you those things. But the question is, should that lock you and I into some fatalistic view or overwhelm us with fear? Solomon's counsel is not at all. And yet, sometimes we want absolute confirmation of success or safety before we attempt anything. Sometimes we want absolute protection from all risk of failure. Sometimes we try to avoid failure or calamity by waiting for perfect circumstances. But Solomon reminds us that that's just not going to work in a sin-cursed world. Now, we know that Solomon's not encouraging reckless living. In fact, Proverbs twenty-one five says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. In fact, we could say this, Solomon loves careful planning. Okay, he, the, He's not encouraging us to be reckless. He loves careful planning. But what Solomon is rebuking here is being paralyzed by fearful, imagined, hypothetical disasters. So we don't sit around like this farmer waiting for absolute perfect circumstances. After all, we live in a sin-cursed world, which means that the circumstances are never going to be perfect. And even if they were, we are not perfect. And we're in, in the midst of those and involved in those circumstances. So what do we do? How do we avoid being paralyzed by uh, anxiety? Well, having outlined the problem in verse 4, the surrounding verses give us the principles we need to overcome worry. And Solomon gives these things to us in a, in a business setting. He says, "'Cast your bread,' verse 1, "'on the surface of the waters, "'for you will, will find it after many days. "'Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, "'for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth.'" Now, so, since Solomon is talking about a business endeavor in which you take risks and hope for a return, I I would suggest, and there are, are there are other perspectives on these verses. They're not easy to interpret, um, but I would suggest that what Solomon is referring to in verses one and two is merchant enterprise and trade, the sending of one's produce out to sea and then waiting for the ships to return with fine goods from foreign lands, a venture that we know for a fact based on 1 Kings chapter 10 that Solomon himself was engaged in and was very familiar with. So he says basically, send out your bread. Uh, it's, so you know, don't you get this picture in your mind like a guy sitting at the, at the edge of the pond and he's got a loaf of bread and he's like pulling off chunks of bread and he's dropping them in the water. <laughs> and you're thinking, well, even if they did come back, you probably wouldn't want them, you know, when they come back. It, it, it's, it's really not that at all. What, what Solomon is saying is, and this term for bread can be translated as goods or provision or produce. You might even say livelihood. So he says, send your food, your goods, your livelihood, your provision, your produce over the face, literally over the face of the water, Over, I would say this way, over the ocean in a boat, and after many days you will have a profitable return. And in verse 2 he says that because of the dangers in that kind of enterprise, the dangers of shipwreck, the dangers of pirates and storms, it's better not to put all of your eggs in one basket. So if two of your ships sink in a storm, then five or six of them will probably survive and make it. So he says, give your distribution to seven or eight. That is to say, send your provision out to seven or eight different buyers. Don't send 100% of your goods to one vendor all via one ship. Now think about what what Solomon's giving us here, the, the wisdom he's giving us. It's a very different attitude then that described for us in verse 4 with the farmer who refused to sow his seed because of his fear of losing one kernel, who refused to take a risk even though risk is inevitable in a Genesis 3 world. And as a result, he had no return. So this brings us to the first principle that we need to help us to overcome worry. And the principle is this. Risk is inevitable. This is principle number one. Risk is inevitable, so be willing to take a reasoned risk. Risk is inevitable, so be willing to take a reasoned risk. Again, God's sovereignty is assumed when we get to Ecclesiastes 11 because of all that Solomon has said up to this point about that. But we don't know God's sovereign plan. So, how can we then make decisions, whether they are in a business context or in any situation in life? Solomon looks at, looks at this and says, Risk is inevitable under the sun. We live in a world full of risks. Shopping is a risk, okay? Walking or jogging down the sidewalk is a risk, right? Hello? You remember? (laughs) Walking is a risk. Dating is a risk. Working is a risk. Eating is a risk. So you're going to have to be willing under the sovereignty of God and while trusting in God to take a reasoned risk. Not a reckless risk, but a reasoned risk. The worrier is paralyzed by the risk and the uncertainty of the future. But the wise man who trusts God knows that risk is a part of life and takes carefully evaluated steps of faith rather than being dominated by fear. So there's going to be risk, but sometimes you're going to have to trust God and go for it, (laughs) right? You can't stay inside the house waiting for the perfect situation. So that's principle number one. Principle number two, as a general rule, effort produces return. As a general rule, effort produces return. So, says Solomon, stop worrying. Send out your ships. And usually, they will come back with a profit. Not always, but usually. But nothing ventured, you have this, this is even, a, a, we use this even in our modern uh, context. Nothing ventured is nothing gained, right? So be sensible with your resources, but put it out there where it is needed. So principle number two, as a general rule, effort produces return. We see that in verse one. Principle number three, plan for things to go wrong. Plan for things to go wrong. Solomon would ask you, are you, worrying? are you worrying that things will go wrong? Stop worrying and just assume that things may not go the way that you want them to go. But don't worry. Send out your goods because you'll get nothing in return if you don't try. But when you do, prepare for things to go wrong. Right? Which has nothing to do with Murphy's Law. Right? It has everything to do with Adam's lawlessness right so it's not just murphy's law it's it, we live in a sin cursed world that's all he's saying that's why he says to send these things out on seven different boats not just one so he encourages that in verse 2 basically it's diversifying right diversifying is a way to protect against calamity and then in verse 6 he virtually says the same thing sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. In other words, you don't know which one will succeed or if both will succeed, so diversify. And we understand this, right? We understand this in the context of records and, 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 and data and, and, and files, right? We understand that you don't store all of your data in one place, right? You plan for things to go wrong, which is why you back up your information. Uh, yeah, not, you're saying in the sense of, of timing, what like all the at one process, time. Putting our eggs in one basket, I mean, the same idea, kind of back to verse 2, about putting all of your bread into one boat. I mean, if you do that boat, we'll sink. Yes. So we're saying, could you also say, reserve some bread just in case? Uh, Yeah, that's possible. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't think you have to push the analogy and say that it doesn't mean that. Okay. But yeah, I mean, I think it's just saying we have, you have a contingency plan. That's not wrong. That's actually biblical wisdom to think about the fact that things may go wrong and to have a backup <laughs> or to diversify or to say we're going to put some out, but we're going to keep some back. So all of those things, it's just saying that that, that, is, that is proverbial wisdom to do that. What we don't want to do is in light of the fact that things might not go the way we plan them to go, that we just sit back and don't do anything. So here's the thing: if you have contingency plans and all of them fail, that's just the sovereignty of God. <laughs> okay, so it, but don't be naive and think that things are always going to go your way. And sometimes we, we plan that way, and that's foolish planning. Foolish planning says, "I have one thing I'm going to do, and I don't have I haven't thought through the alternative. I haven't thought thought through what happens if something goes wrong." So it's a way to safeguard against calamity, but it's not a full foolproof way of doing that but it's still wise to do that now we and we know the limitations right I mean back in chapter 10 we saw the limitations of that kind of thinking wisdom is valuable but it's not invincible you remember Job think about it this way Job was a man who diversified when it came to his investments he had sheep he had camels he had oxen he had donkeys all in different herds pastured in different places but God took them all in one day okay a testimony to the fact that no amount of wise planning or diversification can knock God off the throne of his sovereignty okay yes so so yes, there's wisdom in planning for problems, and diversifying is one way to accomplish that, but sometimes God humbles our most careful planning right we we think of all the what ifs and it's still it, it, that 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 doesn't rob God of his ability to do what he wants to do. God is invincible, not wisdom. But understanding that, it is indeed good to plan. Solomon says essentially that a plan that, that assumes that everything will go right is a good plan for heaven, <laughs> right? But it might not be suitable for this world. So risk is inevitable, but don't let that drive you to worry or to fear, uh, remember that effort usually brings reward. Send out the ships, see what God does, but as you do so, assume that things may go wrong and plan with that in mind. So God's sovereignty shouldn't lead us to a fatalistic view and the uncertainties of life should not lead us to a worry-filled paralysis. What they should lead us to is a high level of God-trusting, God-dependent evaluation and activity. Under the sovereignty of God, things get done when you do them. So we need to learn to be wise, but also learn to be decisive when opportunities come. Principle number four, accept that there are some things that you cannot change. Accept that there are some things you cannot change. Verse three, if the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And this, it sounds like, you read this verse, you're like, duh, when you read it. (laughs) If the clouds are full, They pour out rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls towards the south or towards the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. Wow. You're like, man, that's some incredible wisdom, right? But think about it. This verse is dominated by a sense of inevitability. When the clouds are full uh, full to bursting, it doesn't matter if you want dry weather. When the tree falls down, it doesn't matter if you want it to stay standing or consult you on which direction it's going to fall. Some things just happen and you can't do anything about it. And understanding that helps us with paralyzing anxiety. Because worry is energy. It's physical energy, mental energy, emotional energy, spiritual energy wasted on things that you cannot change. We have to learn to trust God with what we cannot change. And the farmer in verse 4 needs that wisdom as he frets about the weather, right? Accepting that God is in control and deliberately trusting in His goodness and wisdom for the things that you cannot change may be one, uh, the, one of the most worry-relieving things you could ever do in your life. Derek Kidner said this, We are thinking of maybes or might-have-beens, but our business is to grapple with what actually is what lies within our reach. Lastly, principle five, you won't always understand what God is doing. You won't always understand what God is doing. Verse five, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Again, think about how many times Solomon has reminded us of this truth. So it has to be important. And Solomon uses two examples to drive home this point that you won't always understand what God is doing. The first example is the wind. Where does it come from? Where is it going? Not even the most highly trained modern-day meteorologists fully understand the wind and weather patterns. They may know a lot more than they used to know, but my question to you is how much do you trust the 10-day forecast? All right, we don't, right? We, we sort of trust in it, but not fully, because there's mystery second example he gives is the development of human life. Sure, we may know a lot about genetics and biology and human anatomy, but can anyone exhaustively explain the full formation of a human being in its mother's womb? We may understand more than we ever have about the wind or the growth of the bones of an unborn fetus, but there are still things about these subjects that are shrouded in mystery. And so it is with your life. There will be times that you might be able to connect the dots, but there will be many more when you cannot. You know that God is doing all things in your life as a Christian for His glory and your eternal benefit, but how that is going to work its way out in detail in your day-to-day experience is a mystery. You, can, you just can't see it. You just won't get it. You won't understand it fully, but God does. And then in verse 6, Solomon summarizes the section. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. So Solomon's advice is take, take the risk. Go for it. Do it. See what God will do. So back to the warrior that wants the perfect conditions, who wants no risk, who wants an absolute guarantee that his efforts will succeed. Solomon says, stop worrying, sow the seeds, God is sovereign, get the seed in the dirt. Wisely diversify your efforts. Stop worrying about what you can't change and get busy with the things that are your responsibility. The seed may grow and the seed may not grow, but God is in control of that. So how does the God-fearer deal with not knowing the future the plan of God, what is going to happen one minute from now, and not being able to control the outcome. Well, he guards his heart from becoming bitter, not giving in to frustration, not whining, not complaining and spreading criticism. And he guards his heart from becoming anxious and fearful, and his life from becoming inactive in the areas where he has a burden of obligation and a God-given responsibility to strive and to work. Attempting to strike that delicate balance between prudence, risk, and providence. Maximizing every opportunity, being decisive, being responsible, while trusting in the Lord with all of his heart. Okay? So, good good counsel for us, and uh, great timing, I think, just thinking about God's providence and, and the comfort of knowing that all things are under his... Control and yet our God given responsibility in those things, uh, in light of the fact that this morning I'm pretty sure Shane will be in verses 29 and 30 of Romans 8, also a uh, passage about God's plan for us and uh, uh, the confidence we have that God is in control of all things. So, all right, folks, uh, thank you for your time.